Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Before you drift off into one of our meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to share with you one of the new opportunities for our listeners at The Mindful Movement. This is Sarah Raymond, and I'm so excited to announce the expansion of our coaching services to include two of my good friends and excellent coaches, Nikki Dyer and Laura Cannon. Both Nikki and Laura provide their own unique skill sets, allowing us to meet the needs of our growing audience. If you want to learn more, just follow the coaching link in the show notes. As always, we are grateful for your support and look forward to working with you. Hello, and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thanks for tuning in today for another episode. I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Laura Kay today from Lasting Impact Wellness. She is the host, along with her husband, of the Lasting Impact Wellness Podcast. We talked about uh, many things around self-awareness and stress and self-compassion. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you do too. Dr. Laura Kay, thank you for joining me on the Mindful Movement Podcast. Hi, happy to be here. So you, along with your partner, Parker, run mm-hmm. Lasting Impact Wellness, where you offer different coaching services to, I guess, um, help the well-being of your clients. And also, congratulations on a, a new podcast you just started, also called Lasting Impact Wellness. Thank you. I uh, To prepare for this, I listened to it a bit. Actually, I really enjoyed the episode today. It just came out on Mm -hmm. self-awareness. It kind of grounded me to some of the things that I've um, felt I've valued over the years that occasionally will drift away from and, you know, as the ebb and flow of of life hits us. So it was nice to reconnect with some of that. And um, so... Again, congratulations. I think it's uh, I think it's going to be great. I think you're doing something that you're going to be very good at doing. Thank you. I appreciate that. So it seems like you guys take a pretty a holistic approach to wellness at, at your facility. Has it always been that way? You're a traditional uh, physician. So was there a shift at some point or have you always approached wellness the way that you do now? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, my husband and I both spend a lot of years working clinically in emergency medicine, and we've held some various leadership roles throughout our careers, educational roles. And the other part of me that always brought me joy and was sort of a passion for me was teaching yoga. And I started teaching yoga about probably about 25 years ago now, and that was always a huge part of my personal and my professional life. So a few years ago, I started thinking about how can I start to integrate my medical training and my passion for things like yoga, the mind-body connection, physical movement, meditation, preventative care? And then that led me and us to where we are now. And we had a lot of conversations around our goals, our values, and I think a lot of doctors often label themselves as healthcare workers. And not that that's a misnomer, but for some of us, particularly in emergency medicine, 
I think we're more accurately sick care workers. We see and care for patients who are acutely ill, they're in pain, they're in crisis mode, and many of them are not healthy at all. And I love the practice of emergency medicine, but there has been a big part of me that wanted to truly help people to start to optimize their health care and minimize their need for sick care. So as you mentioned, my husband, Parker, and I, who's also a physician, we founded this company called Lasting Impact Wellness Group. And essentially it's a health coaching and consulting company for individuals and groups. And it focuses on optimal well-being and longevity. So it's really about helping people understand their unique intricacies, what makes them who they are and really see them, identify them, and then manage them and create sustainable change that will have lasting impact, not only for themselves, but for those around them. So that was kind of the summary and the crux of what we're doing now and how we got there. That sounds great. Actually, it sounds uh, inspiring. I've been, I think, a cynic of like the Western medical model for a long time now. And on one hand, I, I definitely appreciate, especially the emergency side of things where the where I think the miracles really happen. You know, you're in a car accident, uh, you're on the ground and there's a part of your body that's maybe supposed to be on the inside, but it's sitting on the street next to you on the outside. <laughs> like the fact that humans have figured out a process to fix that, put that back in and get is, is truly miraculous. And at the same time, the system, I think, has handcuffed uh, well-intentioned physicians doc, the, in, a, in a system where it's really hard for the preventative care to take place or the um, really help like chronic, the chronic diseases that seem to take most of us out eventually. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's not that they don't want to, and sometimes it's not that they don't know how, it's that the system doesn't allow for them to get from A to B uh, in a efficient way. Does that make sense? Totally. And, you know, one of the things about Western medicine, which is how I'm trained and I fully believe in its beauty and its value, but it's a very reactive type of practice where we, you know, of course, in emergency medicine, we're seeing people who they have a problem, but even if you think about primary care, there's, there hasn't over the years been as much focus on preventative management. It's more about waiting until you get that thing, that diagnosis. Okay. Now we need to manage it. Your cholesterol has been fine. Suddenly it's not okay. Now we need to manage it to talk about some dietary changes, place you on a medication as opposed to let's identify potential problems based on lifestyle habits, family history. Let's identify those a little bit earlier on in your course and in your life so that we can extend the years that you are well and you're not suffering from these chronic diseases. So I think over the last, I, I don't know the years, I would say decade or more, there has been a bit of a shift with emerging fields like functional medicine, where uh, physicians are actually able to do now additional fellowships and additional certifications and trainings in more holistic medicine that incorporate some of these concepts of preventative care. And I do believe that as time goes on, that need, you know, our population is getting older. So that need is going to be even more pronounced. And I'm seeing it a shift just in my own career that partners, colleagues, some residency classmates are starting to shift 
away from the more traditional training and embark on some of those additional trainings and fellowships, again, to be more holistic and more preventative. But I think it's going to take a really long time before the rest of the healthcare world catches up with that, unfortunately. Right. And yeah. Yeah. I've had a lot of uh, personal experience with different functional medicine doctors. And one thing that's, um, I think, been positive from that is they, they're asking different questions in, in general. Um, they seem to not be thinking about what's the intervention to address this symptom. They're, they're a little bit more curious of like, what, why is this symptom manifesting? And also there's um, a slippery slope in that field of just over testing and uh, the stress, the un necessary stress and roller coaster for the patient to go through, I think, excessive testing sometimes. And I'm sure there's times where it's it's needed or useful, but I think oftentimes people can do more testing than needed to get blood values that are that you could put too much weight on because it's like a it's a snapshot in time where really if they just said, okay, you're feeling like crap, you know, what's what's the sleep situation like or like just started working on things that you know are going to be like low hanging fruit for overall wellness and just see if that moves the needle before you, um, you know, go down some rabbit hole of overanalyzing blood work. And I like how you said kind of starting with the basics, how are you sleeping? What's your, what's your stress level? That's where this topic of well-being comes into play and I wish that there was a bigger space for it within the healthcare world in general, but, you know, the bottom line is most doctors don't have time to discuss these things. You have a 15 minute visit that's dictated a lot by insurance companies and things outside of their control. And if you have an additional concern that you want to discuss, you have to make an additional appointment and it's not included in your yearly physical. And I do believe that's a source of frustration for a lot of physicians. We don't come into this field to see fit patients for 15 minutes and then move on to the next. I, I won't speak for the entire field of, of physicians out there, but I can't imagine, you know, we go into this field in general because we want to connect with people and we want to help them. And a 15 minute appointment to just really discuss the basics from a, you know, what's your, are you drinking? How much is your alcohol use? Are you smoking these days? What's your exercise level in a very uh, superficial way? Because again, we simply don't have time. That's, that's not providing long-term help and long-term care for patients. So patients do, people have to advocate for themselves and obtain their knowledge and their sources of, and their resources elsewhere. And that's again, where this well-being space comes in. A lot of what we do at Lasting Impact is approach organizations and say, here's your employee health program. And that's great. Employee health programs can be wonderful, but research shows that they're underutilized and they're probably not as useful to most individuals as they think they are. And bringing in a different type of program with unique offers that really focuses on the things you mentioned, sleep, stress levels, what are your relationships like? What's your social interaction like? How's your self-awareness? Let's talk about that. Um, And, you know, we really believe that that's where people are going to start to see improvements in their health. And, uh, but again, it doesn't quite fit exactly in with 
the Western medical world at this point. Yeah. Saying that they are wellness programs are underutilized resonates with me. I run a gym and it's in an office building. And over the years, we've had a lot of like corporate memberships. And one of it, one part might be that the individual employee has no skin in the game since it's, um, you know, paid for by their employer. But it is the lowest usage. I mean, it is so the percentage of people that get their gym membership that's in the building that they work in, you know, they, mm -hmm. um, you know, they could be there in 30 seconds. They just don't use it. And I'm sure that's very common. A big part of it too is educating people and starting at the beginning and, and providing like a base of um, understanding which makes the individual more likely to act uh, for the right reasons when they have a clear understanding. And it seems like with the podcast you started, I assume that's a big part of it, just educating folks on some of the basics so that when you're using the valuable like one-on-one -on -one time or, or that there's already a foundation laid so that when you're talking about interventions, every intervention you, don't, you mention whether it be addressing sleep or some um, some daily habit, you don't have to like start at the beginning. You have a resource that you could say, you know, listen to episode three, five, and six, or whatever, and then um, and then you could have a much more productive conversation when you know you're on the clock and they're being billed and such, and uh, it's it's a much more it, it's a much more productive model then yeah, you got 15 minutes, the doctor has no time to educate you. They just have time to add, you know, what are the numbers? How much you smoke? Like you said, how much you drinking? Cut back or whatever. Mm -hmm. They can't explain like how that affects the sleep or how that affects redox or whatever system they, um, they think is relevant. You mentioned self-awareness. Um, boy, that really resonated with me today, listening to prepare for this, listening to your recent episode. Okay. Um, I've, I know I personally have a habit and it's something I've worked on and gotten a lot better at, but I have a habit of just cutting people off. And I know I've even gotten complaints on the podcast that I do that to my guests. It's not something I want to do. It's just something I've done for a long time. And recently I had a, I hate to say the word fight, but my wife and I had like a disagreement, which is a really rare thing you know, once every couple of years, maybe. And we had one recently. And part of it, what the gasoline on the fire during the experience was largely credited to me interjecting before she like finished and not having the self-awareness of like, how's this coming off? You know, this is my best friend, my wife, mother of my children, my lover, you know, like just one of the, the most important people to me. And Essentially, I'm just like, you know, disregarding the quality of her experience based on the way that I'm like out of harmony with my values of, of self-awareness, essentially. Um, can, you, can you speak on that a little bit? How you see self-awareness uh, factoring into like how someone's well-being manifests for them? Sure. Gosh, huge topic, but I do think it's the foundation for 
all health and well-being essentially you know getting to know yourself kind of inside and out knowing what makes you you being aware of your own body and mind signals you know i talk about that in the podcast that helps you identify red flags more clearly when they first appear. It helps you to see warning signs before they turn into crisis. And that can be something physical in your health. That can be something in your relationship, picking up on subtle words or body language from your spouse or your partner when they're sort of starting before the argument occurs. Um, so it, you know, that part of it definitely can apply to pretty much any part of your well-being, but so I think self-awareness is really, again, crucial for all of these things. Um, there's a part in that episode where I talk about reacting versus responding. And I think that's a really hard task for a lot of people to do. And that's one of the underpinnings of self-awareness. It's how am I recognizing something that could be triggering me? And then how do I respond to that? And most people react. I think I use the example of the email in, in the podcast and it's a classic. It was a classic for me when I was director of the department and I would sometimes get these emails that uh, would trigger some reaction in me. And I'd be sitting in my office and I'd say, you know, oh my gosh, are you freaking kidding me? You know, and I, I would want to immediately react and respond, but you have to learn the importance of taking that pause, taking a step back and saying, okay, if I react right now, how I want to, I'm going to probably regret this in the long run. So allowing yourself a, to recognize that the trigger has occurred, B understand how your mind and body are reacting to it in that moment. And then C taking that pause to be able to respond thoughtfully and deliberately considerately instead of reacting. So again, you know, self-awareness is really the, I mean, it's the overall arching theme to all things well-being. And it's it sounds like a pretty basic concept, but it's something that people definitely have to practice and can get better at. And for me, it starts with just taking a pause to sit with yourself and see, okay, how am I feeling in this moment? What types of thoughts am I having about whatever is happening? What types of physical sensations am I, am I having? And, and then using that data to sort of get to know yourself better and then choose to respond accordingly. And yeah, I mean, we could get into core values and how that connects and intentions versus actions, but um, we can all think of people who uh, are a little bit low on that <clears throat> self-awareness, uh, on the self-awareness level there. But um, I think the more self-aware we are, the healthier we are overall, for sure. Are, are there any um, like books that stand out or teachers that sent that you gained that information about self-awareness from? <clears throat> well, I have to say, I learned a lot about self-awareness through my own journey of self-awareness, truly. Okay. Um, I, when I have been in leadership roles, I actually read quite a few books about leadership and uh, one book is Endurance and it's about, um, gosh, I can't think of the name of the ship, but it's that ship that was, uh, they were attempting to go through the Arctic Sea, essentially, and um, they they basically got stuck and how, how the team was led through that crisis. And 
I'm blanking on the name right now. And I usually <laughs> know okay. that right off the top of my head, but the book is called Endurance and it's, it's a beautiful story about leadership. And um, so I think, again, a lot of my own journey through self-awareness of how do I, how do I respond to this email that may have triggered me? How do I respond to this person who said something that may have triggered me in real time? How do I deal with conflict in the workplace? How do I help guide my team through crisis? I mean, you know, I spent three years leading my team through COVID uh, in the emergency department, which was extremely challenging and in so many ways for all the ways you can imagine and then some. And so again, I, I had to really do a lot of introspection at that time and uh, at, both at work, for myself at home with my family, and, um, and then also be really aware of what was happening around me, uh, whether it be you know, the well-being of my staff, how people were handling stress, uh, were people showing up to work, all of those things. So um, I can't say that I gleaned much of it from a specific book, um, but honestly, a lot of, uh, a lot of practical, <laughs> practical knowledge and development of, of my own. And then again, leadership books and things like that. And then there's a book by Ryan Leak. Um, where he talks a lot about, he's a big self-awareness guru um, and he's written a few books and he does, he has speeches that you can watch on YouTube and such. And he's, um, he's pretty good. Uh, as okay. well. I remember when I quit, I, I was a long time drinker. And when I quit drinking, a lot of things came up and I started diving more into books that um, I guess were in like the self-help category. And one of them was emotional chaos to clarity. I want to say the author is Philip Moffat. And I, it was one of the few books that I read and then immediately had to read again. And in doing so, recognizing how disengaged I was and I guess what a lack of self-awareness. And you mentioned the word intention briefly a moment ago, but the disconnect from having the intention of my, like what you say, my values, the things that were important to me, the disconnect from my actions to those. And how that really showed up in the way I was reacting to things as opposed to, um, like you mentioned, like responding a little bit more skillfully, very meaningful book. But yeah, I mean, so there's a lot of tools that could work. It could be meditation. It could be, uh, you know, going through some kind of pain yourself and figuring out how to get through it. Could, you know, who knows, could be psychedelic, could be whatever, whatever tool works for somebody to get the awareness to help you take a forward step. You mentioned, um, stress. I assume with what you do, stress plays a pretty big role in the negative physical manifestations that, that, that you're trying to help people with. I also uh, listened to one of your podcasts about like the physiology of, of, of stress. Can you give a quick summary? We have definitely talked about stress on this podcast many times. Can you give like the couple minute version of um, like connecting the dots of what goes on from the brain to the adrenals or such like the HPA axis or something to uh, get people to understand a little context around what's happening to the body when we experience a stressful um, encounter or event? Sure, I'd be happy to. Stress is sort of, as you mentioned, a big part of my world and a, a big reason for the work that we're doing now. So one of the key things to recognize about stress is that not all stress is bad. 
and acute stress can be really helpful at times. So it's what prepares us to react in a protective way. It also, you know, that's what gets you out on the stage when you're ready to give a speech. You have that little increased rush of adrenaline, that acute stress response that makes you actually put one foot in front of the other and get out there and do the thing that you need to do. It helps us get out of bed in the morning. So from a, when we talk about negative or detrimental stress, we're really referring to a chronic stress situation. So when you think about the stress response, again, it, it, it was adapted we're very highly adaptable creatures as humans, and it was adapted to protect us from harm. And essentially when your mind or body or one of your senses senses a threat to you, then your stress response is going to kick in. And that involves, as you mentioned, a feedback loop from your brain to your hypothalamus, to your pituitary gland, your adrenals, all of that stuff starts to start getting kicked into action. And it starts producing these neurotransmitters that will help your body prepare for this stressful or threatening situation. And I think I use the example of, you know, a bear chasing you. So back in when we were, you know, we're living in caves and hunting and foraging for food, we needed that stress response to kick in if our ears heard a rustling in the bush, or we started hearing snorting from some large animal from behind. And these things are happening automatically. They're automatic systems. It's part of our autonomic nervous system. It kicks in whether we think about it or not. And that's, again, that's adaptive. It's helpful. It's preventative. The problem is, is that when it's when this system kicks in, when we're not under a particular threat and our bodies oftentimes don't know the difference between that major threat and something like our to-do list, our meetings, our, you know, keeping up with the schedules with our families, the sort of what seemingly, what seems like mundane tasks of our day-to-day as they start to build up it starts to trigger that stress response inside of us. And it doesn't always have to be this huge giant surge of adrenaline and cortisol. But when someone is dealing with these sort of lower level stressors, but they're building up over time, then that's what leads to chronic stress over time. And that's the part of chronic stress that can be detrimental. It has effects on our it has effects on our nervous system, has effects on our blood vessels, our heart, our brain, our kidneys. Um, inflammation, you know, all kinds of things. And that's, that's where we start to run into trouble with stress. So again, it's, it's helpful acutely when we need it to protect us, but it's not helpful when it stays simmering at this low level, uh, but over time. And that's when it becomes really detrimental. Yeah. And it's, I've noticed over the years, I don't think many people even recognize the things that are the stressors. It's like, um, I'll work with a lot of professionals and they like their job. So I think because they like it or they just have a really positive attitude and it's not that they're compensating with their attitude, but they have this, um, you know, they're geared towards productivity and accomplishing tasks, getting things done, moving forward. And in doing so, and either being really productive or really enjoying what they do, which is great, they don't recognize that even that you enjoy it, 50 hours at the desk, staring at a computer under artificial lights, ungrounded, whatever, um, 
is is stressful. Like that's so far removed. This is kind of brand new in this, even though we are adaptive, we've only been adapting to these environments for, for a very, very short period of time when you, when you zoom out and have a kind of an ancestral approach or evolutionary approach to where we're at on the spectrum. So or even, there's, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say you, you sparked a thought that just because we manage it well, it doesn't mean that it's not affecting us. And that's a really important point to make because I meet people all the time who uh, they come in to, and I think I might reference this in the episode, but they come into the emergency department with uh, a panic attack and it may be the first time they've ever had one. And they're really trying to identify what is this? What is this feeling? What is this sensation? And one of the questions we'll talk about is I'll start to kind of talk about stress and they'll say, yeah, but I'm not, I don't, I'm not that stressed right now. I'm just, I'm just doing my usual thing. And then when we start to break down their usual thing, it's a lot of stuff and they're managing it well, at least on the surface they are. They're getting all of their meetings done. They're, you know, they're showing up to work on time. They're doing all the tasks that they need to do. They're also managing the household. They're getting the groceries. They're planning all of the meals. They're making the lunches. They're picking up the kids after school. They're doing all of the things that are uh, sort of on their list and fulfill their roles in their life, but, and they're managing it on the outside, but on the inside, that's that chronic stress. That's that nervous system, that sympathetic response that's always on because they are, they're always on. They're never stopping, taking a moment, pausing, taking some deep breaths, letting that sympathetic response settle down for a little while. So they don't feel particularly stressed, but their body is telling them otherwise. And eventually a lot of times patients who, people who experience a panic attack for the first time, it's sort of like a, you know, it's like a, a boiling pot that's about to boil over and they were just managing it really, really well until it just basically explodes. And then that's their, that's when their sympathetic system just kind of goes out of whack. Um, and they think, okay, gosh, what's happening here. So the, the goal is to get people to, as you mentioned, start to recognize those things, even if they're managing well, so to speak identifying what are those potential little low level sources of stress and building in time for themselves doesn't mean you have to get rid of those tasks or those things, especially as you mentioned, if you enjoy your job, for example, but understanding the need to schedule in time for some self-care and some connection with others, some social interaction and uh, focusing on the things that can help dampen that sympathetic drive a little bit and uh, start to strengthen up their parasympathetic, their relaxation mode, their rest and digest uh, gotcha. system, so to speak. Can I uh, pick your brain for a moment about because you're an, you have experience as an emergency physician? When you mentioned panic attack, that uh, that also resonates with me. I had a panic attack once after a um, an athletic event, and I went to the hospital and I was misdiagnosed with a heart attack. Oh my gosh. Which led to a greater panic attack. I had uh, two very small children at the time. I was 31 years old. I thought I was never going to see my kids again. They were calling in a helicopter. They wanted me to take, um, was it nitro? And they gave me some aspirin. And the guy said they, they took one blood value. I think um, one of the cardiac enzymes was off because I just ran like 10 miles. And, um, I had panic 
So luckily, friend of the family knew somebody. There was a cardiologist came in. Got a, I demanded a second opinion, and luckily he came in and um, he said, "No, you didn't have a heart attack." But that was a traumatic experience. Uh, turns out I was probably a little dehydrated for the amount of activity I just did. And they were ready to put me in a helicopter and, and they had already told me how to hell uh, I had a heart attack. So for like six plus months afterwards, I would have pain. I would like every time I would go out for a run, I was like, am I going to have one? It was like I was afraid to do anything strenuous. It was a constant fear of having a panic attack. And in my experience with panic, a lot of what makes it worse is the fear of it getting worse. Exactly. When, what advice do you have for people that, you know, putting aside the lifestyle choices, so tapping into like your emergency experience, putting aside the things that we could support holistically um, so that we generally don't get panic attacks, when someone does have one or feel that, because I know it's it's unfortunately really common that people experience these. Um, in the moment, what do you find helps? I love that question. This is what I sit and talk with my patients about. So, and I always start with the sentence that these things may sound kind of hokey or cheesy or easier said than done, but it really is, uh, there's basic management to when you're kind of in that moment and things are starting to get revved up. When we talked about that acute stress, a sympathetic drive, everything getting revved up, that's what's happening when you're having a panic attack. Everything is revving up. That feedback loop of neurotransmitters from your brain to your adrenal glands and producing all these hormones, that is, it's, it's like it's on, you know, it's like it's on steroids. <laughs> forgive the pun. And it's just going and going, going rapidly. And then you're starting to have these physical sensations that arise. Your heart rate can start to be really fast. Your breath will start to shout, get more shallow. Some people experience panic attacks with very different symptoms. Oftentimes they can get tingling all over. There's generally this overwhelming sense of doom, like something awful is going to happen, or I'm going to die, or someone's going to come in here and take me away and put me in a mental institution. There's all these sort of somewhat irrational thoughts that happen and that's from that sympathetic drive. So the key in stopping it is activating your parasympathetic branch. And the best way we have to do that, the easiest way we have to do that is through our breath. And what I tell people who experience this is it's really hard to do that in the moment. When things are revved up, it's really hard to breathe because you feel like, someone's closing in on you or your chest is closing in. So that highlights the need to practice some breath work when you don't need it. Um, so oftentimes I just tell patients, look, the easiest thing you can do is start to slowly count in your head from one up to 20 and close your eyes, visualize the numbers and breathe slowly. You can even breathe in, count for one, breathe out two in three, out four, so on and so forth, get to 20 and then count backwards from 20 back down to zero. And as you're counting, think about intentionally and deliberately slowing down your breath. Again, it's really hard to do in the moment, but it will help. If you can do it, it will help. It will help mitigate that intensity of the sympathetic drive. Um, so a lot of it, again, is, is breathing. Other things you can do is start to count your count your inhale. So pick a number. There's like five, six, seven breathing is a really easy one that you can remember. So you inhale for a count of five. 
and then you hold your breath for a count of six and then exhale for a count of seven. And again, when you're in that panic mode, it gets really hard to do this practice because that sympathetic drive is so powerful that it wants to interrupt your breathing. It wants to interrupt your counting. But if you can practice that and just stay committed to doing it, it, it will certainly help. Um, other things that can help patients I've found over, uh, and just friends and family who I, who I know are keeping, some people keep a little mint or something in their, on their person, in their purse or in their pocket. Um, and if they start to feel a sensation of panic coming on, they take that candy or mint and put it in their mouth because it, that sensation of having your salivary glands kick in, it's sort of stimulating that rest and digest of, okay, I'm mm. eating something, something's in there and it can distract the mind as well from those racing thoughts that develop. Um, so those are two tips. And then, you know, people oftentimes get anxiety or panic in two very common situations. One is driving. Um, there's something about the act of driving. Oftentimes it's because that's the first time in their day that they're not distracted by the outside world. Somebody's not speaking to them and they're finally having a moment to sit with their own thoughts. And that's when things can start to race. So I always tell people, if you're driving and you start to feel a sensation, come on, just pull over to the side of the road, put your windows down, get some fresh air in and start working on those breathing exercises. Um, and then the other scenario where a lot of, uh, people have panic is uh, in the evening before they go to bed. Uh, evening times tend to be worse for patients who suffer for, with anxiety and panic attacks. And again, I'm not a psychiatrist, but this is uh, my experience. And I think one of the, one of the reasons, again, similar to driving is we are on all day long and then evening comes and you finally get into bed and suddenly those outside distractions are no longer there. And then that kicks in all of your thoughts and emotions that you have been sort of pushing aside and ignoring all day. Um, and so that can be a time as well. And in, in those cases, I, I definitely recommend some sleep meditations for people, guided meditations, guided breath work. Um, that can be really helpful in the evening because oftentimes it actually can really settle them and then they just drift off to sleep and it can kind of nip it in the bud before it actually starts. Gotcha. What about... Um body like orientation. So in that stress response, we have the adrenaline and cortisol that you mentioned. Uh, most folks have probably heard of those. One of the things it's doing is moving blood and resources away from the center out towards the extremities so that you can uh, use them to run or fight or whatever. Is it useful to lay on your back and like put your legs up, put your arms up to draw? Is that a, like, I know there's some things where you're doing something to stimulate the sympathetic by like overriding that autonomic response, like with the breathing. Can you also override by like putting the blood back? Is that also a signal like, oh, if there's blood here, this must be a safe time. And is that helpful? It's an interesting question. I don't know what the data would say behind that, but anecdotally, I would say, I think the benefit in that scenario would be from actually slowing down. Um, okay. So less about the actual position, because you're correct, as you mentioned, in that sympathetic response, we're shunting blood to the vital parts that need it. So 
um, to the extremities, to the muscles, but we're also, we are also shunting it to the heart already. And that's why our heart rate speeds up because we're, it's part of that defense mechanism. It's considered a vital organ. It's really shunting away from things, mainly the gut, um, because it's not, you know, needed in that moment. So mm-hmm. again, I don't, I, I would say that position probably does not matter, but lying down on your back, for example, spreading out your arms and legs, that might be a position of calm for somebody just in general, instead of, you know, sitting up or pacing or, you know, and looking all around, but getting yourself into a position of calm, whether that be lying down or sitting comfortably leaning up against the wall or a pillow or something. And then again, using your breath to stimulate it. Your breath really is the number one thing that can activate the parasympathetic. And, you know, there is, there's clear science behind that. Your diaphragm is lowering, your vagus nerve is being stimulated. And that's, that's the, you know, the scientific and medical basis for why just one deep breath in and out alone tell, starts to tell your body, okay, let me start to calm down here. So, you know, again, if I could give your listeners one take home of one thing that they can do when they start to feel out of control, it's that intentional, deliberate, deep breathing. But like okay. I mentioned, it's, it's what hard about to do. Dietarily, do you feel there's any dietary intervention in the moment that could help? In the moment? No, not necessarily. Aside from water, I do tell patients to drink water. It's it makes them feel better. But I think, you know, caffeine has is clearly proven to uh, worsen anxiety and, you know, any type of stimulant that you're drinking gotcha. um, or taking in. I mean, I, I know a lot of people who drink those five hour energy drinks and these Can't imagine. Red Bulls. <laughs> I always say if I drank one of those, I would be sitting in the corner talking to myself for an hour because it would just rev me up so much. So, um, you know, caffeine intake is a big one. I ask people and patients about their caffeine intake a lot when it comes to anxiety, um, and stress and, and panic, because that's, that is clearly associated. So I'll oftentimes tell patients to people, I keep calling everybody patients. That's a force <laughs> of habit. Um, but tell people to trade out some of that caffeine. Now you don't want to cut caffeine, then you'll get other problems like headaches and such, but, um, tr- start trading out some of that, especially if you're suffering from, you know, panic attacks or anxiety or feeling palpitations and things like that. Um, and gotcha. you mentioned dehydration for you, I mean, that there is a relationship there. Um, right. There's something that has helped me and I've dived a little deeper into, um, I guess what would be considered like the bioenergetic model of, of health that really focuses on metabolism and relationships between like energy and structure. And like you mentioned the adrenaline and cortisol, and it's one of the many things they're doing is they're elevating to help um, increase energy availability, essentially. So they're increasing like gluconeogenesis, like making glucose out of our structure. So you're essentially tearing down a little bit of structure to get more energy to help you through the stress. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I've was recommended that I found extremely helpful is sugar. Um, because these hormones are, are, are elevating. One of the reasons is to give you sugar is to get more sugar in the system. And I used to vilify sugar for a long time but I realized reluctantly at first that 
the body runs on this stuff um, and has pretty um, efficient infrastructure for it. And I've noticed that if I have a legitimate serving of sugar, um, one to two tablespoons, it has a very noticeable, very dramatic, very quick effect on acute like stress, anxiety, panic. And I think that's why it literally gives a reason, I think, to tone down those stress hormones. Um, and I don't know if that ever, does that ever happen in a medical environment? Like when somebody comes in and they're in the emergency room, do they ever give us, give them like a glucose drip or whatever to, or glucose IV? Is that ever done? So we do give IV glucose, but that's only for patients really who are hypoglycemic where their blood sugar is low. Um, but isn't that happening? And then the cortisol and adrenaline are the comp are the adaptive response to get it back up. In, you're, in a panic attack, you mean? Yeah, or I guess because panic is an acute stress. Acute stress. So really, any I guess maybe any acute stress. I mean, there's stress and there's non-stress. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting question. I I would say I don't I don't know that there is available data on that, but I can tell you that you know. Uh, there is something called an acute stress response or acute stress reaction in medicine where we actually in those we in those instances when we measure people's blood work and we get their basic laboratory work up right. in the emergency department their blood glucose is actually much higher, higher. than it is at baseline uh, but example, isn't that what cortisol and adrenaline are doing well or one not, of the things that they're doing yeah i mean they're they're changing the environment for insulin and glucose to work with one another, but I honestly don't know if there's a direct correlation with your then blood glucose level, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, and, and I would say again, in practice, what we see is in these acute phase, we call them acute phase reactants and um, other things like your white blood cell count, for example, can be elevated in these acutely stressful situations. And, um, and blood glucose is one that we see uh, something example that comes to mind is a person who has a seizure, for example. Now, people can have seizures because their blood sugar drops very, very low. Right. But aside from that category, um, let's say it's a person who suffers from epilepsy and they forgot to take their medication for three days and they come in and they have a seizure and we get their blood work right at that point. A lot of times those acute phase reactants or those stress response uh, findings in the blood work can be, we can see elevated blood glucose. So it'd be someone who doesn't have diabetes, but when we get their blood work, their blood sugar is pretty high right. and that's an acute phase reactant. So. Right. Cause they, they're not coming. They didn't have a seizure cause they had birthday cake. Like the right. blood sugar is not high because of dietary intake. It's high because that's the adaptive response. Exactly. So I guess what I would glean from that, again, I don't, I don't know the data behind it, but I would say it's not the opposite, meaning in those stress responses, the blood glucose that we can measure is not dropping. If we saw that, then I would say, yeah, that makes sense that we, you give people glucose back, dietary sugar, intravenous sugar, then it could it could benefit them, but we actually, again, clinically, we just, we see the opposite where those sugar levels that we can measure again, I, there's a right. caveat there that we can measure are actually elevated in those situations. I believe they are elevated. 
and they should be elevated. And I guess what I'm claiming is that I think they're elevated because those hormones are elevating them. Right. But and then tell me intake of dietary sugar will have an inverse relationship on those stress hormones. So I've tested this a bunch of times. Now, I actually had a physician who's a client of mine try it because when I told her about this, she looked at me like I had a couple extra eyes or something. And um, she she's a t she's a doctor that teaches. So she says she gets like super anxiety prior to like her lectures and such. So I said, um, you know, next time take, try a, a tablespoon of sugar, sprinkle a little salt on it before. And um, she did it and she, she said it worked. And then wow, I said, next time it. try two, <laughs> two tablespoons. Yeah. I think there is something there. I think sugar is so vilified in like society in general that it's really hard to be open-minded about it initially when you know, we just think it's just such an enemy, but it's like the body does run on this stuff and we have a good system there. And one thing, and it, that I think ties to the breathing that could be associated to helping the acute uh, response has to do with carbon dioxide, because when you're slowing down your breathing, which we know works and it works for a number of reasons. And one, yes, is that um, signal because that information on the vagus nerve is mostly northbound. So it's signaling, hey, this is a safe time. You don't need to be freaking out or whatever. Obviously, it's safe because look how calm I'm breathing. Mm -hmm. And also, especially when you're focusing on those longer exhales, you are increasing carbon dioxide levels through like the, and through the bore effect, you are getting that carbon dioxide signaling to allow to signal hemoglobin to release oxygen into the tissue where it could be used. So we're getting the good feeling of being oxygenated, which is important. Um, by having that carbon dioxide level up and carbon dioxide is a vasodilator naturally. So oftentimes we're, I know people were thinking about uh, nitric oxide as a vasodilator, but I believe that's a, that is an adaptive response. That's like the stress state. Whereas the homeostasis state is carbon dioxide is doing that for you. And if you're breathing uh, well, that could be, you know, up for interpretation that you have adequate carbon dioxide, which means your tissues have the oxygen they want. And I think there's a connection with that, with why sugar in an acute state helps because running sugar glucose through. So when you're in a stress state, you have hormones that are releasing structure. So proteins and fats to be utilized so that, so the, the protein has to go and get converted to glucose by the liver, but the fat can be sent to be used as fuel. Fat can act as like structure and fuel, but when fats being run in the mitochondria to make energy, to make ATP, 
it doesn't make as much carbon dioxide per unit of time relative to glucose. But when it's in there, because when it's in the mitochondria being run because of the Randall cycle, you can't run glucose in there. So you, get, you could run one or the other within a cell. So you're not allowing glucose, which also could be a stress, which makes the liver put out more, put out more glucose into the, into the blood, which will elevate blood sugar. So if you take a snapshot, you'll see a high blood sugar. And then in most stress states, you're going to see that elevated blood sugar. But I think ingesting sugar um, can help help that because you could get some sugar in the system, putting the brakes on some of the stress response and producing more carbon dioxide per unit of time, which our body likes, especially in that situation. I think there's a connection there. Now, um, I'm not an expert on explaining that stuff. I don't know, but I think there's something there and I've tested now. I have a, a history of a lot of stress <laughs> and a lot of anxiety and more panic attacks than I'd like, you know, but um, recently I've been really tinkering with that over the last, I don't know, maybe like eight to 10 months as I learned more about this. And it's been really helpful to my surprise as someone that has viewed sugar as the enemy when really we're really good at using it if there's nothing interfering with us using it and things that stress us out are generally the things that interfere us using it but it is calming and i think one of the reasons it's calming is one of the same reasons that the slowing of our breath helps us in that same scenario what's important i think is that there are a lot of tools that people could use and i think breath is you know, the, the portal, uh, to that present moment that is like the anchor that we all can use and control the dial, even though in the moment, as you suggest, it's super hard to do, you know, and, um, it's useful to have somebody there to say, take a few breaths, slow down your breath. So the, when you're in the thick of it, you know, it's not the easiest thing to be self-aware enough to be like, Oh, I'm have I'm experiencing panic. Mm -hmm. Let me go down my checklist. Let me slow my breath down. Count to twenty, or five, six, seven, or whatever you said there. Um, yeah, it's interesting too. You mentioned you were running your um, department or whatever through COVID, and that probably had all kind. So you have a late. Everyone in that field already has like a stressful job. Mm -hmm. And then they you layer on all these weird dynamics, which really throws things off. I know in in my work, you know, I'm going. Somebody comes in. I'm asking simple questions like, you know, how do you feel when you wake up? What's the bedtime routine? And they get into their job, and they have all had this uptick in stress, like this whole new layer for like a year or two or three um of a stress that's like layered on top and stress has this cumulative effect and it's like the elephant in the room that people haven't recognized it's like it's been swept under the rug already on a societal basis in a way and it's like they they've gained weight not that they've stopped exercising but like they don't realize that they have been affected 
you know, this has been a traumatic experience for many people and, you know, different levels of intensity. And um, it's, un it's unfortunate to see that people are walking around and they, they don't even realize that you already had a stressful life as most adults with like real jobs do. And then they have this crazy layer on top of that. What did you do to help in the, in the work environment to help navigate that for like a, a collective of, of people, like a team? Well, one of the things that made it so difficult during COVID was the fear of the unknown. Um, I think we're all fearful of things that we don't understand. And that was the hardest part at the beginning of the pandemic, just not knowing anything about this virus and uh, what it meant for us immediately at the time, and then what it meant for future generations and all of those things. So the unknown was the scariest for sure. Navigating through that was challenging. I wish I could say that I had a seamless, magical way of getting everybody de-stressed in those moments. But I think some of the things that were most important in those really stressful times were communicating with one another, checking in with each other quite frequently, you know, leaving those discussions open, letting people feel like they could be vulnerable and uh, they were supported. I think that was probably the biggest thing, again, at the beginning of the pandemic. And we definitely saw over time that there was this need for people to have uh, have outlets for their stress. Uh, for example, maybe providers would want to work one or two less shifts a month, or we had you know, we had a time where we would just kind of have a group text and say, I'm feeling kind of overwhelmed this week. Can anybody pick up my shift on Tuesday? Things like that. Um, so I think the, the support that was generated from a, we're all in this together kind of feeling was really, was really a beautiful thing. And it probably helped keep us going as things progressed. You know, we stayed, my, I can only speak for my group. We stayed very supportive of one another, which was again, an amazing thing and really helped get us through that. I tried to, as the leader, be the person who shed some positivity on things and, you know, tried to show up to my shifts with a positive tone of, again, support. We're all in this together. Let's just deal with today. We can get through this together. And then tomorrow's a new day kind of thing. So that was probably, you know, part of the things that got us through those hard times. I mean, there's no question that as a society, those few years of pandemic have changed us uh, for sure. I like to think that there's some positive that came out of it, whether it was just those things I mentioned of understanding that you need to support people that you love or support people in your work environment and trying to understand more about stress and the ways in which we manage it the ways in which it's manifested within us individually. Um, but it was, it was a hard time. I mean, and yes, we're still feeling and seeing vestiges of it even today. And who knows what might happen in a few months when winter comes along again. And um, I like to think we're better prepared for next time, but I'm not so sure that's the case. Gotcha. From, for you personally, you seem to, you know, it's, they're lucky. It sounds like your team was lucky to have you to be able to have the self-awareness and stay positive for that and um, and allow people to feel supported. What are the things that you do to help support yourself? Like what are the, the anchor practices that you rely on that you think um, like offer a lot of, 
I guess like bang for the buck that everybody could kind of tap into um, on a day-to-day basis as far as like routines or practices that that you feel support you on your own like journey of well-being? So I try to start with self-compassion. I That's something that we often don't do. And it's taken me a lot of practice over the years to develop that as a practice myself. And what I mean by that is talking to myself and treating myself like I would my best friend. And some of that, I can give you a silly example. Um, I had a friend who's in my neighborhood. She texted me the other day and asked if I wanted to sign up my girls for soccer when school starts. And I read the text and I got this sort of immediate feeling of, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to practice twice a week and I don't want to commit to something on the weekends and my kids are still young and they already do all these activities. And it started this kind of thing in my mind of, but maybe they would like to do soccer. And then I just said, nope. And I texted her back and I said, sounds fun, but not for us. I don't, I don't feel like, I don't feel like doing that this year and I'm okay with that. So again, not, not carrying around so much guilt with decisions that I make or, um, and learning how to say no to things and just being okay with that and moving on. Um, so that's, that's a big practice that has helped me to stay grounded over the years. And then, you know, for me, fitness is a big part of what keeps me stress manageable. I won't say stress-free because there's no such (laughs) thing, but stress, stress manageable. Um, and I, you know, moving my body, physical movement every day in some capacity and even approaching that with self, some, some self-compassion. And what I mean by that is setting realistic goals is oftentimes something that we don't do. And, uh, probably about a year ago, I got into a bit of a rut where I was feeling overwhelmed. I was taking on too many tasks and I was neglecting some of that self-care and I wasn't working out as much as I had been used to. And I just kind of one day said, I am just going to commit to moving my body for 45 minutes a day. And it doesn't have to look, I don't have to make that look like anything in particular. Maybe some days that'll just be stretching. Maybe some days it'll be 15 minutes in the morning of stretching, a 15 minute walk outside in the afternoon, and then 15 minute dance party with my kids at night, but I'm (laughs) going to commit to 45 minutes, you know? Um, and again, that's, was my number any, you could pick 20 minutes. So committing to something, but not putting a ton of pressure around it uh, makes it, I think more doable and approachable. And then if I miss a day, it's not the end of the world. I'm not a bad person. Um, so, so those things, and then I do practice yoga. I teach yoga. I, I so practice a few days a week and uh, I do practice meditation. I tend to, uh, I tend to meditate in the evenings. I do a lot of sleep, five minute sleep meditations and things. And um, that definitely has helped me with my sleep hygiene and my restfulness through the night. That sounds great. What a great combination. Um, self-compassion definitely overlooked um, and getting outside, the, yeah. I think is a big thing too. I don't know. I mean, it's something about when I was a kid, my mom used to force us to go out and get fresh air. She'd always call it, go out and get some fresh air. And I probably resented yeah. her at times for it when I was a kid, but now I love it. I mean, I'm outside constantly. And the, in that the sun is unfortunately like vilified. Oh, uh, and it's it. like, who <laughs> doesn't feel better the second the sun hits you when right. you walk up? Like, like listen, if you listen to your body, 
it'll tell you, you know, getting sunburn, not good, but getting as much as you sun you as you can without getting sunburn, right. uh, very good. That feeling of warmth on your skin. Oh, it's nothing like that. Yeah. Yeah. I've become a bit of a sun worshiper. It's interesting too. I feel as a kid, I used to get sunburn a lot and now I don't, even though I get a lot more sun, there's, I, I don't know if I'm like, um, building a, a, a more intelligent about building a tolerance like early in the season or something, but, um, something is changing. I assume it's positive, but, um, so, and you, so you still make time to, uh, to teach yoga too, as a practicing physician, you're teaching yoga and yeah. you have kids and you're, you're juggling a lot of stuff. I am. And I, I go in, it waxes and wanes over the years, over the months I've, been really lucky to teach primarily at a studio here in town that uh, has given me a lot of flexibility over the years. So uh, I've kind of, I'll, I'll teach for a few years, take six months off, just depending on life and what's going on. And even that, again, when I start realizing that it's becoming a chore and a task for me and not something that I'm looking forward to and enjoying, then that's the signal to me that, okay, right now is the time to step back. And um, I'm very aware of that. And I really try to listen to myself when I'm, when I feel that. Gotcha. What's generally the, um, like the first, the most likely first place you start with like the average person that you're working with is, as far as like what category of, of these practices, like, do you generally start with um, something that's more mindset related, like the self-compassion or something fitness, like, you know, get out, take a walk in the sun, or is it more uh, linked to like sleep habits or dietary things? Where do you usually find like the most success beginning for someone that's um, just starting to want to make a little change? So really strengthening that self-awareness muscle, I call it. Mm. And because that's where you kind of get a better idea as to where you're starting. Um, you know, how do I know, how do I know what I need to do to fix my sleep if I'm not really taking an honest look at my sleep habits, um, as an example, or, you know, how do I know what kind of nutrition I should be putting into my body if I'm not really thinking about how this makes me feel when I eat or drink this certain thing. So really for, for us, it's starting with self-awareness, core values, intentions, that's, that's what lays the, uh, the foundation and the groundwork for all of the future pillars of well-being, like the nutrition and the fitness and sleep and recovery. Um, so I think that's probably where we do the most work with people and clients is helping them to deepen that internal awareness, that expanded awareness. Um, and, and then throughout the other pillars of well-being, so to speak, and other um, modules and sessions with them is when we can start talking about uh, mindset shifts, self-compassion, habit formation, um, because it, you know, it's not those, those types of things cross into every category, of course. But again, that foundation is really all about, in my opinion, our opinion, all about self-awareness. Gotcha. That's great. Well, uh, I want to respect your time. We got a, a late start after having some technical difficulties this morning. So glad we worked it out. I am too. Um, I really enjoyed this. I know we got into the weeds a little bit with the physiology, but um, that's just, I don't know, maybe the nerd in me that is curious and uh, always looking for different um, opinions on that stuff and different ways of seeing things.
Well, I'm going to go back and look through my molecular biology and think, <laughs> enjoy think th and think through all of those uh, intricacies. I can't say I've gotten that far in the weeds on it in a long time. So you could be exactly spot on. And uh, next time I feel anxiety or panic coming on, I'll be a good excuse to uh, eat a giant chocolate chip cookie or something. Right. <laughs> you know, it's else. funny you say that because one thing I would touch on, I've worked with a lot of physicians where I'm there coach in the gym. And one thing I have noticed is, you know, the way that they're trained to, there's so much information that has to be learned and then uh, remembered, recalled and brought back for a test. And one thing I noticed, like when we talk about um, maybe certain pathways, let's say it's the Krebs cycle or something energy production related. It's like they, they recognize all the steps and they might even recognize the cofactors to get from one step to the other. But it seems like in the medical school system, what hasn't been taught to them is how that relates to how you live your day so that you make good energy almost like they understand the infrastructure there, but they haven't been taught how to use that to their advantage to live well. So yeah. you could mention things and like, oh, yeah, I remember that from school, or whatever, but they don't. They're not taught to use that to help somebody that's in front of them take advantage of, um, you know, the tools they they have to improve their health. It's an interesting, and I'm, you know, this is a generalization, but it's something that I've noticed with the physicians that I've worked. They understand the lingo, but they've never connect the dots to like why I feel like this or how why this makes me feel better. Yeah, which is well, it's interesting. Well, it's interesting that when you are a practicing physician, you have a lot of, you just gain a lot of practical knowledge along the way as well. And I think some of that more textbook stuff, for lack of a better term, right. gets stored away way back in your mind. And even if we, again, I'm going to finish this talk with you and I'm going to be like, right, let me think through that breathing cycle. Heck did he say? <laughs> yeah. And, and again, I'll maybe listen back to this and think like, oh, Laura, you were totally wrong. But in the moment, it doesn't change the fact that if somebody is hyperventilating, clinically, practically, what do I need to get them to do? Slow it down. Well, right. Right. Sure. So regardless of what's happening to them molecularly and they're in for conversations like this and practices long-term, yes, helpful to know that. But it, it is funny how you say that, you know, that textbook stuff does get kind of put in the back and when there's someone in front of you and they're in crisis, you have to just sort of also know, okay, what works, what's not going to work in this moment. And then what is going to work. And right. then, and then, yeah, when you get put on the spot like this on a podcast, you have to <laughs> so, think back through your, it's, it's through your molecular biology, but um, <laughs> I don't even know that I still have that book over there. I'm sure I do. My husband keeps every textbook ever made since uh, probably he was in elementary school. So I'm sure it's in here somewhere. All right. Well, um, I want to con uh, congrats you and Parker again on your new podcast. I think it's fantastic. I think uh, right out of the gate, you guys are doing a great job. So I'm looking forward to hearing more from it. And I encourage the listeners to go check out the Lasting Impact Wellness Podcast. And for those that want to learn more about how to get more inv individualized or take advantage of your, your group or employee services, is it uh, it's lastingimpactwellness.com? Yes, that's correct. Any other thing you'd like to add or share ways of folks to connect with you, Laura? No, um, we're also open to email at info at lastingimpactwellness.com. And then we are on social media, which has been a 
step outside my comfort zone. And that's just, uh, we're on Instagram at lasting impact wellness. So thank you for the opportunity to chat with you. And as I mentioned before, I think even before we started recording, it's this podcast world has been a really interesting way to just meet new people. And I find that really fascinating. And I really do believe that we can all learn something from each other. It's why I love emergency medicine and meeting people from all walks of life. And I don't ever leave a patient interaction where I didn't learn something. So that's great. Well, I've really enjoyed meeting you and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and for the listeners out there, always grateful for your listening. I hope everybody has a terrific day. Thanks again, everybody for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I sure did. And I look forward to connecting with Laura again in the future. I hope you have a great day.